Good morning, Harvest. It's good to be in God's house worshiping His name, isn't it? Well, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in John 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, we have people coming down the aisles right this moment looking to get a Bible to you. Just raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that as your own. My name's Calvin. If you're visiting here, so thankful that you're worshiping with us. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. Thank you for carving out some time in your weekend to come to church. And uh, here's what I, I would say to start my message. Um, this week is very, very much meat and potatoes theology. And it is one of those messages where I would argue that John 3 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And here's why. Because there's things in life that you can afford to get wrong, and there's things in life that you can't afford to get wrong. And I'm going to use hunting as an analogy. Um, there's things in hunting that you can afford to get wrong if you're out deer hunting. And it'll be a bummer, but it's not the end of the world. Like, you can go to the wrong stand, right? And you won't see deer. You'll pick the wrong field, and you'll have a long, cold night. But it's not the end of the world. You still were outside. It's okay, right? If you're hunting and you mess up the wind direction, right? The deer will smell you from a mile away. They won't come near you. It's a mistake, but it's not the end of the world. You probably won't get a deer, but not all is lost, right? You can come out too late in the night or too early and scare the deer away. You can even miss a shot, and it's a bummer, but it's not the end of the world. There's certain things in hunting you can't get wrong, though. Like, you have to know what a safety is on your gun. You have to know how to properly load and clean your gun because that is literally life or death. If you get those things wrong, you or someone else could die. There's certain things you just can't get wrong. Well, the same is true in Christianity. There are things in the church that Christians disagree on and can argue about and can be wrong on and still be saved. They're not salvation issues. Like we are starting an end times class, I think, this week. And here's what I would tell you. For centuries, the church has argued, what's it going to look like when Jesus returns? What are going to be the signs? When is it going to happen? What is it going to look like? And there's a ton of different arguments and theories. And that means everyone but one is, is wrong. There's a lot of people that are wrong when it comes to the end times. And here's the thing. We'll find out who's right when we're all in heaven together. Right? You, you don't lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation or you're not not saved because you have end times wrong, right? For centuries, the, the church has argued, is it free will or sovereignty? Does God choose us or do we choose God? And here's the truth. In that argument, one side is right, one side is wrong. Or maybe I'll put it this way. One side is choosing to be wrong in that one. See what I did there? That's a theology joke, right? If you're offended, calm down. It's just a joke, Okay. But at the end of the day, we will joke about that together in heaven. But what we're looking at today in John 3 is something we can't afford to be wrong on. And Jesus is going to tell us in his first teaching recorded in John what it means to be saved. We are going to hear today from Jesus, what does it look like when you're saved? That's why this is so important. And so here's what I would say. This is a morning that's worth leaning forward and pressing in on because even though it's very meat and potatoes, we can't afford to get this wrong. So do me a favor. Can you all just like lean forward a little bit in your seats? Yeah, I just, I just like that, all right? You can, you can sit back, but intellectually, I need you leaning in with me this morning. Let's look at John 3, starting at verse 1. Here we go. 
It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So here's what's going on in John 3. A man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews. So he's on the Sanhedrin. He's like the highest level of Pharisee. He comes to meet with Jesus at night. And some have thought that the reason Nicodemus is meeting with Jesus at night is because he's secretly listening to Jesus and buying what Jesus says. And he wants to follow Jesus, but he doesn't want the other Pharisees to know. That's what's often taught about Nicodemus. I don't think that's what's happening in John 3. Here's why. Look at verse 2. It said, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, and that's the important word, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Do you see what Nicodemus is doing? He's speaking on behalf of the Pharisees. It appears from the text that he was sent by the Pharisees. He's speaking on their behalf. And what I think is happening is, is the Pharisees sent Nicodemus to Jesus to cut a backroom deal with him. Jesus has just come to Jerusalem. He's teaching with authority. He's doing miracles, but he's also causing disturbances. He's driving people out of the temple. He's verbally arguing with the religious leaders. And I think what's happening, the Pharisees send Nicodemus and they're like, cut a deal with Jesus. We, we, we see that he's gifted. We see that there's supernatural power with him, but we don't need to be his enemy. Let's figure out how to find middle ground. Let's figure out how to help each other. Let, let's figure out how to make this work. And Jesus instantly cuts him off. And what he says is, he goes, you'll never see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, until you are born again. And he gives Nicodemus the first of three pictures or analogies he uses for salvation. And the first picture is born again. And you see in the text, it immediately confuses Nicodemus. And he's like, well, Jesus, I'm a grown man who's old. I can't exactly crawl back into my mother's womb. What do you mean be born again? That's not even physically possible. Okay, but Jesus is teaching us three things in this first picture of being born again. Here's the first. Jesus is telling us that in salvation, our moral performance doesn't count. He, he's saying everything that you've done to be a good person, to try to earn your salvation doesn't count. If you think about this, this would have been a wildly offensive statement to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader of the Pharisees. He was one of the highest teachers in Israel. No man had dedicated his life more to strict observance of the Mosaic law. His life was being a good moral rule follower. That's what he did. That's where he got his self-worth. That's where he got his value. And Jesus is saying, hey, Nicodemus, you have to start completely over. It counts for nothing. Church, look at me. We need to believe this. We do not earn God's love or favor by moral effort or performance. God has never asked you to meet him halfway. Our moral performance doesn't count. And for some of us here, that's really good news. Right? It's interesting. One of the accusations the Pharisees would make against Jesus is they would give him a, a nickname that was mean. And they would call him a friend of sinners. 
And what they were saying is, is, is Jesus, if you're truly the Messiah, if you're truly the Holy Son of God, how come all of the sketchy people flock to you? Why is it that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people who are on the lower kind of outer edges of society, why are they the ones that you're close with and, and tight with? And here's why. And church, this is just a truth that is, was true in the day of Jesus and it's true today. The gospel and the beauty of God's love and forgiveness is way more visible to people who find themselves in a moral crisis, right? When our life is falling apart, and maybe it's a marriage that's falling apart, or, or maybe we um, have been exposed in an area of sin, and we're kind of outed, and we have to deal with the ugly in our lives. In that moment, it's very, very clear to us that our way is not working, that we need help outside of ourselves, and, and the beauty of the gospel is very, very visible and apparent, right? The sinners flocked to Jesus because it was very, very obvious they needed a Savior. Here's what I would say. One of the most dangerous things that you can be in the entire world is a nice, good, moral person. And here's why, because if you're that, and if you're relatively successful, and if people look up to you, and if you've had no major skeletons in your closet or run-ins with the law, like if your life has been pretty stable and good and nice, it's easy to trick yourself into believing that you've done enough and that you don't actually need a savior. It's hard to confront your sin when everyone else views you as a good moral person. You don't think you need to be born again. And I guess I just want to say this super crassly. There's going to be a ton of really nice people in hell someday. Because moral performance doesn't count. You need to be born again. You need to be transformed by Jesus Right? This would have been offensive to Nicodemus because there is no one in this room that, that had near the resume of Nicodemus's morality and goodness of moral character. Jesus says it doesn't count. Here's the next thing Jesus is saying. He's saying that to be born again means our life is fundamentally transformed. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, to us, this language of being born of water and of flesh and of spirit is confusing, but to Nicodemus, this would have made perfect sense. And see, again, Nicodemus would have known the Old Testament. He was a teacher of the law. And what Jesus is doing is, is he's referring to a famous prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, God shares with Israel what salvation is going to look like for them. And he says this, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. By the way, say uncleannesses three times, right? That's hard. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Do you see the connection there? Well, what God is saying, what Jesus is referring to is that when you are born again, God gives you a new heart and a new spirit. You become a fundamentally different per person. Your purpose in life is transformed. The things you love are transformed. Your identity changes. You become a brand new person. One of my favorite examples of this is in the life of the man, St. Augustine. 
He was one of the early church fathers and probably the most or one of the most brilliant thinkers in the history of the church. His writings are still foundational for so much of the theology that is um, being talked about and taught from pulpits all over the world today. And uh, Augustine, before he was saved, uh, he was a hedonist. And I don't know if you know what that word means, but that means he just lived for pleasure. And however he could find it, whether that was drunkenness, whether that was sex, like he just lived to feel good. And what that meant was that he had a lot of women in different towns and villages that he would have casual sexual relationships with. Well, after, shortly after he was saved, Augustine traveled to a different village and he was doing some teaching. And there was a woman there that previously he had had a romantic relationship with. So she comes and approaches him and kind of does what they always um, would have done. She came and she's very flirtatious and she's advancing on him. And when Augustine saw her, he was warm, he was kind, he was gracious, but he repelled all of her advances. And so she was kind of confused, like, what, what's going on? And as she turned to leave, she had this thought come across her mind, well, maybe he doesn't recognize me. Maybe I got my hair cut. Maybe he you know, just doesn't recognize who I am. So she turns and loudly says, hey, Augustine, it's me. And he responds, yes, I know, but it is no longer I. I love that. You see, Augustine, because of his salvation, he is transformed as a person. The things that he lived for, he no longer lived for. His life used to be marked by a lack of self-control, but now it's marked by self-control and purity and wanting to honor the Lord with his body. There's a fundamental transformation. You know, it's interesting. Some of you guys might have a similar testimony to me. Um, I was a church rat. I grew up and my folks have been involved in the church as long as I have been alive. My dad was an elder at the church I grew up in. My mom led children's choir. She taught Sunday school. Both of my folks were in choir at church, right, with the robes and everything. Um, one of the things my dad really wanted to do when he planted this church was sing more on stage, and we never let him. You're welcome. You guys can thank me for that later with a letter or something. Um, but like we were at church all day Sunday for Sunday night church. Like it was part of our lives. So by God's grace, I came to salvation at a young age. I was five, six, seven years old, somewhere in there. And listen, have there been times in my life where my sin was made very clear before me and there was repentance and turning from it? Yes. Have the Holy Spirit moved in my life where I felt his presence and felt his power? Totally. But it was something that I was saved when I was young and I've walked with the Lord for most of my life, all of my adult life. And the interesting thing is, is some of my best friends, they didn't get saved until they were adults. And I get a little bit jealous of their testimony. Because they talk about it and they're like, Cal, I used to be so self-centered and I was destroying my marriage and I was destroying my family and, and everything in my life was backwards until I found Jesus. And he saved my marriage, he's transformed my family, he's transformed my life. And he goes, everything that I thought was important um, are, is not nearly as important now that my heart has been changed. And it's like, man, I would love to experience that. And you know what they tell me? They're like, no, be thankful for your testimony because the Lord spared you from a lot of pain and heartbreak, right? Um, when you are saved, your heart is changed. You love the things of the Lord. One of my favorite things to do during the office during the week is we have a, a content producer on our staff. His name's Lucas Vanderlindy, and he does our God at Work videos. 
And so what he'll do is, is he'll give me a sneak preview and be like, hey, Cal, I just finished up one of the videos. And it'll be like 11 o'clock on Wednesday. He's like, do you want to see it? You know, we're going to show it this Sunday. So I'll go in his office and we'll watch it. And like both of us will just be moved by the testimony of the Lord in someone's life. And we'll both like be in his office around his computer crying, watching this video. Right. And then we step out of the office and our eyes are all red and we're wiping away tears. And everyone's like, what is going on in that office? It's like, no, we're good. I promise you everything's fine. Right. But it's like, man, when you see the Lord move and you see his glory and power, like it moves your heart. You desire to worship him, to experience his presence. You love his word. God's word is not handcuffs keeping you from the things that you want to do. It's actually the path that leads to green pastures and still waters. You are quick to view life through the lens of his goodness, and that produces a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. You have a sincere desire to honor and follow Jesus with your life. It's not all about you anymore. And here's the wild thing about following Jesus. It's that even though our good works don't save us, salvation will produce good works in our life. That's why James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. But listen, the motivation is different. You see, Nicodemus did good works to earn God's favor. We don't do that. We do it from love. Hey, God, you've loved us. You've saved us. You've shown me grace. You've shown me kindness. You've shown me mercy that I could never deserve. And out of love and gratitude for what you've done, I want to worship you and I want to follow you. It's a love relationship. We don't do it to prove anything to God, but we do it because we trust God. Right? One of the things that's changed a little bit in my preaching over the last three or four years, I'm trying to shine a spotlight on the fact that our culture and what we're living for as a society is not leading to life and happiness. But God's way does. His ways are right. His path is straight. So we trust him because we know that he is good. Paul, in his letters, he refers to this idea that we have an old self and we have a new self. And when we're saved, God gives us this new heart. And what discipleship is and growing in maturity in Christ is we live out in more and more of our new self. And our old self, which is our pride and selfishness and sin and rebellion, that becomes less and less. And one day in glory, it will be gone. But church, I need you to hear me right now. We can't get this wrong. If you are here and you still believe that you have to impress God or that God, you're somehow in God's debt or that you've got to earn something with God through your actions or performance, that might be evidence that this transformation hasn't happened yet. We do it out of love and out of trust. Then here's the third thing Jesus is saying. He's saying salvation is the result of pain and suffering. Right, he uses birth because in birth there is pain and suffering. I was talking with uh, Janelle Lopez, our children's ministry leader, uh, this week, and we have a child dedication class, or right now, and then we have our dedication service in a couple weeks, and we have 25 families dedicating new babies in our services on that weekend. And I was joking around with her, being like, wow, it's like COVID ended and people realized they liked each other again. Now, nine months later, we're like swamped with babies, right? And uh, here's what I would say. Those 25 babies, they weren't delivered on a doorstep by a stork. You realize that, right? Like those babies came into the picture because there was a labor process that was extremely painful. And there was a mom that bore their weight and suffered and bled in order that they may be born. Last week, 
I was hanging out with my family, my wife and kids, and we were in the hot tub in our backyard, and it was me and Mary, and then our two girls, Nora and Ashley, they're 12, Bo is nine, Judah's eight, and uh, we're just hanging out, talking, talking about the week, not really talking about anything, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Bo, my nine-year-old, goes, hey, Dad, aren't you so glad you're not a girl? And I immediately see my like, girls snap their head, being like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, Bo, what do you mean? And he goes, dude, imagine having to have a baby. Just brutal. <laughs> and I was like, well, you're not wrong, but you need to learn to read the room a little bit. You're not winning yourself any friends in this moment, right? But like, if it's obvious to Bo, like, it's because it's painful. Did you know that Jesus uses childbirth as an analogy for his death on the cross? Did you know that? In John 16, he writes, or he says this, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Like it's interesting that Jesus viewed his death as like, man, I'm going to bear the weight of sin I am going to suffer and bleed and die so that we can be born again. It's a gift for us that's free because Jesus paid the price. It's because of his life and death that we can be born. Here's the next one. The next picture he uses is that of wind. Look at verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So the next picture he uses is wind. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? And here's what Jesus is driving at. It's very, very simple. It's that the Holy Spirit is a gift that we receive as followers of Jesus, and God's Spirit becomes a driving force in our life. To be saved means you receive the Spirit of God, and that is a driving force in your life, right? The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. It is just as much God as the Father and the Son. And listen, I don't have time to do an entire theology of the Holy Spirit, but there's a couple things I do wanna say. There is so much confusion around the Holy Spirit in the church today. And uh, I would say that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still alive and active. But here's what the Holy Spirit does. You need to get this right. The Holy Spirit's job is always to elevate Jesus. That's what he did during the ministry of Jesus when Jesus is on earth. That's what it does in our heart right now. It elevates Jesus. So here's what that means. Being filled with the Spirit is not about losing control. It's not about an experience. It's not about us at all. It's definitely not about holding poisonous snakes. I can promise you that. If someone tells you to hold a poisonous snake, run away. That's not safe. Um, It's about elevating Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that saved people are led and moved by God's spirit. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna get very practical and helpful because I get this question asked often. How do I know if the Holy Spirit is leading me. How do I know if the Holy Spirit is leading? Well, here's the first, write this down. Um, It will align with God's word. If you're being led by the Holy Spirit, it's going to align with God's word. The Holy Spirit's never gonna ask you to do something that contradicts the written word of God. The Holy Spirit's never gonna tell you to leave your wife. The Holy Spirit's never going to tell you to abandon your family. 
The Holy Spirit's never going to tell you to empty your bank account, go to the casino and put it on red, right? Because God says to steward your money and to be wise. This is not led of the Spirit. Here's what the Holy Spirit will do. It's going to move you towards obedience to God and his word and to elevating Jesus in your life. Cool example of this, in my small group that I'm in, we meet on Saturday nights. Just a couple weeks ago, I had a lady in our small group ask for prayer, and she goes, hey, the Lord's really leaning it on my heart. I feel the Spirit leading me to share my faith with this specific person. I've got a friendship with her. I've got a relationship with her. The Lord's putting on my heart. I need to be bold. She needs Jesus. I need to tell her about Jesus, right? Well, that's elevating Jesus. That aligns with God's word that she's being a light. Like, yeah, that's obviously from the Spirit, The Spirit will pull on your heart to confess sin. It will pull on your heart to forgive, to be generous, to do things that love others. Maybe that's adopt or foster. Like it's going to move you towards loving God and loving others. It's never going to move you inwards towards selfishness. I promise you. Here's the second thing about the Holy Spirit, the way you know you're being led. It will be confirmed in community. It's going to be confirmed in community. If God is calling you to something significant, he's going to use other people who are filled with the spirit, who know you and are in community to confirm that calling. And if you remember when we were going through the 10 commandments last fall, I did a sermon on taking the Lord's name in vain. And I said, one of the ways we do that is we say, well, God told me or the Holy Spirit told me and we use it as a trump card to say, you can't tell me what to do because I'm going to appeal to God and I'm going to do this on my own individually. That's actually taking the Lord's name in vain. If God is leading you somewhere, he's going to use the family of God to confirm this in you. Here's an incredible example of this. Many of you don't know that this happened, but we had a young couple in our church um, this fall. Uh, They moved to Alaska. Their names are Cody and Tricia. And they'd been a part of our church for years and years and years. And they were feeling led by the Holy Spirit to pursue getting educated for full-time ministry. And God opened the door through a Bible college in Alaska. Well, here's what I love about that story. When they were feeling this call, guess what they did? They prayed with their small group about it. And their small group affirmed this calling in their life. And then they met with elders and pastors and leaders and were like, do you see this in us? And it's like, well, you're faithful in ministry and you're serving and God's using you. We affirm this in you. And even the last weekend they were here, they came up forward and we prayed together. And it was something that they did where the Lord was moving them significantly, but they had the humility to not be islands or isolate themselves. They did it in community because they trusted God's spirit would work through that. But here's the third. If the Holy Spirit's leading you somewhere, God will open and close doors. I am a big fan of walking through wide open doors. If God's calling you to something, he will make a way for it. I think so often we want to get to the finish line of what we think our lives should look like right now. And so what happens is we get frustrated because we keep banging our head against the same closed door over and over and over again because we're more committed to our plan for our life than what the Holy Spirit's plan is. Like we need to trust that God is in control, that in the process of waiting, he is working on our heart. He is accomplishing his purposes and plans wherever you are right now. I've had um, both people inside of our church and outside of our church just call me out of the blue. And they're like, Cal, I I really love Harvest, and I really think the Lord's asking me or wanting me to come be on Harvest's staff in a full-time pastoral role. 
And my answer to them is always the same. If that's what God wants, he's going to make that obvious to everyone involved. Right? He's going to open up a role. He's going to confirm that in our elders and our leaders, and he will make that happen. Don't force the issue. Bloom where you're planted. Be faithful. Be used by the Lord in ministry in any capacity you have. And if God opens that door, it's going to be clear for everyone. So church, if I could give you just a little bit of pastoral advice right now, I need to say this. Please guard yourself against drawing hard lines with God. I hear way too often in this church, man, I would never. And it's like, man, I could never lead a small group. I'm not bold enough. I'm not mature enough. I could never do that. Or I'm never going to leave this small group. I love this people. I don't want to do community with a different group. I could never do that. I could never serve in this area of ministry. I, I could never see my life going this way. Listen, Here's the attitude that I really, really like. Hey, God, I'm going to be open-handed in whatever you call me towards, I'm going to step into. Whether that's adoption, whether that's foster care, whether that's a new area of ministry, God, I want to be open to your spirit's leading. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to make sure it aligns with your word. I'm going to walk slowly and with community in it, but I want to be open-handed and follow the spirit's calling. Amen? All right. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Like, I love this. Nicodemus is just so confused, this entire conversation. It says, and Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, if we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is like, how can these things be? And I love what Jesus does here. He just starts making fun of Nicodemus a little bit. He's like, wait, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get this? Like, how are you not tracking? I thought you were the one with the doctorate's degree in the law. And then he goes, listen, if you can't understand what I'm telling you now, you're not going to be able to understand what I teach you in the future. And look at verse 13. Jesus gets very, very clear with Nicodemus. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. So Jesus says, I can teach heavenly things because I'm from heaven. Jesus is explicitly saying, I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. I am the one you are looking for. He's saying salvation comes through me. And then he gives one more picture of what salvation looks like. And it's this picture of being lifted up. Look what he says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And here's what's happening. Nicodemus, it's interesting. He, when he greets Jesus in verse two, remember what he says? He says, we know that you're a teacher from God. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus right now is, I did not come to teach, but to save. 
I am not just a teacher. You have me wrong. In fact, I am the Savior. And he reminds Nicodemus of a story in Exodus where the Israelites, they're in the wilderness, they're being led by Moses, and they're grumbling and complaining and throwing a fit. They're being babies. So what God does is he sends uh, serpents into the camp, and they bite the people of Israel, and they're poisonous. So they're starting to convulse. They're starting to seize up. If God doesn't intervene, they're going to die. And God tells Moses, make a serpent out of bronze put it on a stick, lift it up, and go into the middle of the camp, and anyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. Moses does that. The people look at the serpent, and they're healed. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the serpent didn't come to teach. He wasn't built to teach. He was built to save in that story. He goes, he was saving them from the poison of their lives and their illness. Jesus says, I came to be lifted up on a cross to save people from the poison and sickness of sin. He goes, I've come to save, not just to be a teacher, right? Jesus, just like the serpent, would be lifted up on a tree and he would suffer and die and pay the penalty for our sin and selfishness and rebellion against God. Our only hope is in Jesus and what he did for us. Second thing this picture shows us is that salvation comes through faith in Jesus. Look at verse 15. Jesus says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Church, how are you born again? How are you saved? It's through faith in Jesus. Believing that Jesus is the eternal son of God, that he came to earth, died to save us, rose again, defeating sin and death, and that because of Jesus, we are forgiven, made new, and saved. It is through faith in Jesus and nothing else. And church, you have to hear me though. When I say belief in Jesus or faith in Jesus, I'm not saying just intellectual knowledge or agreement. This faith, this belief, it becomes the central truth of your entire life. It shapes you, it defines you. You are more than anything committed to Jesus. You are his you're in his family, you've been adopted, it changes your identity. Is that true of you today? Are you more concerned about a part of loving God's kingdom or your kingdom? Faith fundamentally changes who you are. And then here's the third one, it's this. It's that saved people lift Jesus up, right? I love the simplicity of this last analogy. Because at the most simplest level, being a follower of Jesus means we lift him up in our lives continually, that we lift him up in our words. We lift him up with worship. We say things to him that elevate him. We say things about him that elevates him in our obedience and in our love and in our kindness and in our repentance and in our forgiveness. Listen, we do these things because it elevates Jesus. It lifts Jesus up. And so here's the amazing thing about this story, church. Nicodemus did not come to Jesus looking to find salvation, but did you know that he found it? If you read the rest of like the history of Nicodemus, he only shows up two more times in the gospels. One time it's at a meeting of these Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, and they're talking about how do we accuse Jesus? How do we get him killed? And one man stands up for Jesus in that group and his name's Nicodemus. And he's like, hey, maybe we should hear him out and hear what he has to say. He might actually be right. And he's quieted and he's made fun of and he's told to be, sit down and shut up. And then the other time we see Nicodemus, do you know the story? 
It's right after Jesus has died. The one who takes him down off the cross, who wraps his body up and cares for his body, makes sure he has a tomb to be rested in. It's one of the leaders of the Pharisees. It's this man, Nicodemus. Making a decision to honor the body of Jesus that would have for sure had massive implications and ramifications on his reputation and his career and his job. But you know why he did it? Because he had a new heart. He had a new mind. His motivations had been fundamentally transformed. He met Jesus and Jesus saved him and Jesus changed his life. The question is, is has he done that for you? So what we're gonna do right now as a church is we're going to remember Jesus's death and on the cross for us by celebrating communion. And please don't put anything away right now. You'll have time to do that in a sec. Um, here's what I'm going um, to really, really encourage you with. Listen, communion, we are remembering the body of Jesus that was broken. We're remembering the blood of Jesus that was shed by drinking the juice and eating the bread. And um, it is for followers of Jesus. It's how we identify him. It's how we remember him. It's how we celebrate him. And so here's what I would ask. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've not been born again, please don't take of the elements. Let those things pass. But here's what I would say. If you are not a follower of Jesus, why not right now? What is holding you back from experiencing the love and grace and forgiveness and the desire of your heart being filled. Like how much longer are you going to go with these eternal longings in your heart that nothing else can seem to satisfy? We have the answer. His name is Jesus Christ, our creator, the savior of the world. Let's pray. Dearly Father, God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of salvation. And God, I'm just praying right now that there would be hearts in this room who would make that step to call out to you and just say, I believe in you. I believe in Jesus. I trust that he is my savior. It seems too simple to be true, but that's the amazing part of the gospel. God, I just pray that you would change hearts. I pray that you would save lives. And then for those of us in here who do know you and do love you, God, I just pray that our identity, our new self would be more and more ever present in our lives. We love you. We need you. Thankful for all you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.